Welcome back to the ARM Viewpoints podcast. Today, we have an episode that tackles an important topic impacting everyone as we explore the latest developments and innovations in digital security. My guest today is Richard Grissenthwaite, Senior Vice President, Chief Architect, and Fellow at ARM. Richard has worked for ARM for the past 21 years. He's responsible for the long-term evolution of the ARM architecture and has led the architecture since heading up the introduction of ARM 6 in 2001. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. Richard, it seems like cybercrime, whether it's malicious attacks or ransomware attacks, is increasingly in the news. Can you explain the explosion in these attacks and what's behind the increase? Well, I mean, I think the reality of the world is that crime always goes where the money is. I think it's always done that. And the more that computing is central to our lives, the more it is going to attract criminals. If you think about what's happened to us all over the last uh, 20 years, we're putting more and more of our information, our banking, our health information, everything uh, onto computers rather than keeping it in the desk drawer or whatever. And that becomes an attractive thing for criminals to try and exploit in a variety of different ways, whether it's simply try to steal your money or to use information against you or whatever it is. And it's kind of just human nature. Crime has always been the sort of dark side of all technologies. And so as computing has become more and more central to our lives, both you know nationally, commercially, individually, the scale of the opportunity for the criminals is increasing um, and it is it is immense. So you see some horrifying statistics. There's something like $6 trillion worth of cybercrime in 2021 and that's predicted to rise to some $10 trillion by 2025. Now we've got to be careful about the term cybercrime because it covers a huge range of different activities. It covers, you know, espionage in governments, organised crime, ransomware, the low-level frauds that target individuals and particularly people who are not desperately knowledgeable about computers. And it's really important to realise when we start talking about security that security isn't one thing. In fact, it's inappropriate to talk about being secure in an abstract sense without really be defining what you are secure against. There isn't a magic bullet to solve security. As the old saying goes, you're only as secure as the weakest link. And depressingly, the cyber criminals are incredibly good at finding the weak links of security. So every organisation, and indeed every individual, has a role to play in fighting cybercrime. It won't be solved by one company or one individual alone. But ARM, as a leading provider of um, CPUs, is very keen to play a part in providing processes with security features against the range of threats that we see being deployed and can imagine being deployed in the future. But also because we are in this position with a whole ecosystem of other companies, we want to encourage that ecosystem to adopt the best practices, to really um, do the best they can to provide security. I mean, ARM has been adding features to address uh, security for for a really a couple of decades. And four years ago, we published what we called a security manifesto as a way of broadening our influence in computer security because we recognised that an awful lot of people are kind of rolling their own things and providing a very attractive target for these sort of criminals. And this was at about the time when IoT was ramping up and we were seeing um, that there was space for the ecosystem to come together to protect the future. 
So in that manifesto, we detailed key vulnerabilities and mapped a vision of how the industry should respond. We followed that up a couple of years later with a second manifesto that reflected on the lessons learned by some of the new attacks that we saw, such as Spectre and Meltdown, which made a lot of headlines, but were actually just part of this whole spectrum of different attacks that, that um, cyber criminals use. So a very long answer to your question, I'm afraid. But it's really there because of the size of the, the opportunity and the sheer range of different things that can be attacked. And we've just launched our third edition of the Security Manifesto, which surveys the current threat landscape, its recent evolution, and the strides the industry has been taking over the past four years. Are these attacks expected to worsen in the near future? I mean, I think the simple answer to that question is yes, the the ongoing digitization of our lives is increasing the attractiveness of the of of the target to go after you know the size of the prize in the eyes of the criminal is growing to be more and more uh, attractive and that means there are going to be more attempts more people um, trying to break in but it's worth observing that some of the measures that we bring it we've been bringing in are actually closing down the avenues of attack. And so the, the threat is evolving over time. And this is part of the kind of the ongoing struggle that exists between um, the architects who are uh, improving the security against these attacks and the sophistication of the cyber uh, criminals. If you look back over the last couple of decades, we've seen a ratcheting up of the sophistication of attacks into in response really to the measures that we have put in um, to address what criminals are currently doing. To give a really concrete example of this in something called data-oriented attacks, which is where people, if you download a, a photograph or something, sometimes you get a little warning message on your computer saying, warning, this might damage your computer or might be a, a source of an attack. Um, those, those warnings exist because people have found ways of taking data and using that to actually take control of your computer. Now, the very first parts of that were desperately simple. Essentially, within the image, there would be little snippets of code and people would, would be able to execute that. And the architects added in features such as uh, execute never to make it impossible to have data that had been recently been written to be executed. And we kind of thought, job done. But then the criminals came back with um, attacks which reuse snippets of code with things like return to libc and return-oriented programming. And so in response to that, we introduced pointer authentication to try and close that off. And we're hearing that where that has been deployed, the attackers are moving on to find new avenues of attack. So what we see is an evolution of the attacks. But the basic question of do we expect them to worsen, I think they, they are continuing and I think there are more and more incentives simply because more and more of our lives exist in cyberspace. The potential vulnerabilities stretch from hardware to software to human error. Are you able to walk us through some of the ways the industry is responding to strengthen security and improve trust? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a number of, of, of points to this. I mean, one of the big advantages ARM's got is that we, we, serve, we provide IP to a wide range of this industry. We're used in, in servers, in, in client devices, in IoT systems. And we can actually learn lessons from those different segments about what the attacks are. To give a very concrete example of that, um, we've recently introduced into our microcontrollers um, features to, um, from our pointer authentication that I was talking about a couple of minutes ago, um, 
which were originally derived in our client computing space, things like phones and um, and tablets and, and the like, uh, in order to provide robustness for our future microcontrollers against these sort of attacks. Now, at the moment, we don't see those sort of attacks because actually the cyber criminals are finding other routes in because actually the IoT space historically didn't have a lot of areas of security. But once we deal with the, the basics, what we can imagine is they will step up to um, use the techniques that have worked so well in other spaces. So we want to try and keep ahead of that by bringing in security features that are, are ready for the future. But in order to deal with some of the things we've seen in the IoT space, a few years ago we introduced something called the Platform Security Architecture and a, a certification program called PSA Certified to provide a security framework for the IoT sector. And this was really a first step of us encouraging the IoT ecosystem to follow the best practices in security because as when people were getting very excited about you could connect things like light bulbs onto, onto the internet, they got desperately excited about doing it. Let's get that out there. And perhaps they didn't pay enough attention to security from the get-go. I'm sure people have seen examples. I think there's a bit nice video on, on YouTube where um, a drone flying past a house manages to hack into the light bulbs of the house and to get the, the whole house flashing on and off because the security of those systems um, really wasn't very good. Now, that actually doesn't require some of the sophisticated attacks um, that we see today in, in the client space. There is a much more basic levels of security failure there. So what we did with the platform security architecture is to put together a framework to drive the basic fundamentals of security with standardization of the threat models to have a common definition of what a secure IoT system really looks like. And since the launch of this PSA certified scheme, we've seen over 70 certified products, that's chips, software, devices across the world, adopting these standards. And again, just raising the bar of security. ARM recently launched ARM Confidential Computing. Can you describe how this technology can deter cyber criminals? Well, actually, confidential computing is going to almost the other end of the spectrum from what we're talking about on the PSA side. Um, and it's looking at some of the really very sophisticated levels of attack where an attacker can end up compromising the key system software, such as the hypervisor or the operating system. And perhaps that comes as a culmination of various exploits that they find throughout the system. Now, in the traditional model of computing, uh, this system software can see all of the data of all of the applications or virtual machines that it manages, which means that if your critical data is held in um, an application there, if the attack has got into that system software, it can see your data. And that data might be your bank information, it might be your health, and health data, it might be your company's bigger secrets, all of that stuff that you really want to protect. What we're doing with Confidential Compute is providing a mechanism to keep the data of an application or a virtual machine inaccessible to the system software that is managing the application or virtual machine, so that even if an attacker gets to the level of being able to compromise the operating system or the hypervisor, your data will still be kept secret and can't be corrupted. And this is kind of an important part of a mindset of layered security people listening to this might be thinking, well, can't you just make it impossible for attackers to get into that system software? Uh, and the reality is that's not how security people need to think because it is so hard to prevent 
uh, attacks because there are so many possible avenues because software is actually so complicated as well as trying to make it very, very hard to get that escalation of attack, you need to ask the question, well, if that does happen, what damage can be done? So you end up with this security in depth. It's not good enough to have just a single very hard to get through door. Behind that, you want to have more layers of security so that if somebody gets through the door, there is still a limit to what you can do with it. And confidential compute is all about saying that even if the attacker gets control of your operating system, your most secure data will not be accessible to the criminal. Right. And I can imagine that's particularly important in things like personal health data, for example. And we've seen an explosion of that in the last year. Uh, absolutely. I mean, health, health data is, is very popular. I mean, obviously, with, with the pandemic and all of that, um, you know, it's been vital there. And people are, you know, are rightly very sensitive about what information that they they want to share with and, and therefore you want to be very careful to um, protect that sort of information it's also um, financial transaction data um, it's it's your as I said before your company's uh, secrets that should nowadays increasingly lie on your phones or, or on your devices um, and all sorts of information whatever you need you need that data uh, to be protected from uh, the attackers as you talk about working with these industry bodies and we start thinking about um, things like certification and verification, um, how important are they in the overall push to improve security? Well, we have an adage in ARM that there is no specification without verification. It's, a, it's a, an easy phrase to trot out, but it actually has a real truth behind it. Unless you verify that what you build actually follows the specification, all the specification really is is an aspiration. It's what you wanted to do, but it's not necessarily what you did. So verification is really vitally important. It's an important part of, of what it means to specify security. I specified this and I verified that what I built is actually consistent with that. Um, and you've got to be very careful that the verification is done by people who, who are trying to defeat um, the security. In other words, you're not marking your own homework, that somebody else is actually checking that what you have built is, um, is genuinely secure, because that way people can trust, oh look, that is actually properly secure against those threats, because somebody has really tried to break into it, and they know what they're doing, rather than, I, I tried to break it, and I knew, I knew what I'd, I'd done about it. So verification is vital, and then certification is really about communication of the trustworthiness and of the security status of systems. As I said before, everyone has a part to play in the defeat of cyber criminals, but not everyone wants to or is able to be an expert in exactly what is necessary on this. If I'm a hotel manager, for example, or run a set of hotels, and I'm installing a set of door locks into my, my hotels, the last thing I need to to do is spend my entire time understanding all of the possible cybersecurity threats that could exist against my new easy entry open with your phone door locks. So they need to be able to trust that this is a secure system. Now, certification provides a route to being able to say, uh, here is a label where somebody who knows what they are talking about, what the possible attacks could be, has, has verified the security of the system. And I'm then able to trust that uh, certification. And, so, and therefore, I feel good about 
um, the installation of uh, the example I gave the door locks in my hotel. And then I might be able, when I'm having a conversation with an insurance company, uh, to be able to say, well, actually, I'm using something that's been certified to this level of security. Um, and if that's a recognized certification, the insurance company might, for example, give me a, a discount on the insurance that I've got to do. So, so certification is really a way of communicating the status of, of the security of systems. And this is why we've been putting so much work into the PSA certified scheme that I talked about before, because it's really about um, getting the entire ecosystem of the IoT space, the, the chip manufacturers, the people building um, you know, the, the systems, and then the people downstream using them, recognizing that this is actually uh, a valuable label to apply to an object because it tells me I can trust this and uh, and gives me actually some benefits because I've told people downstream that this is a trustworthy system. Um, and so it's about communicating the trustworthiness of, of systems. So you were saying that everyone has a role to play. So I'm wondering what role regulators and policymakers should play in a global response to cyber cybercrime. I mean, I think the reality of the world is that people will tend to look for shortcuts, um, find, find routes around things. And the reason you have regulation uh, and, and government policies and, and so on is to ensure that where, um, where the, these things are critical to, to an infrastructure, uh, for example, that the shortcuts aren't being taken. So, so having, having governments uh, or regulators turn around and say, for part of the uh, telecoms infrastructure, you must have this level of security, you know, really desperately important for people to be able to trust that, that key infrastructure. Uh, so, that, so that becomes really important at the, sort of, at the global level. But equally, when you are looking at, 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 at simpler systems and, you know, if, for example, uh, my mother, who, you know, is, is quite elderly and, and not desperately technologically aware, needs to buy a new router. You know, she doesn't want to have to, to cope with a range of different um, labels and standards from people. Being able to pick up something that has been published by the government, uh, published by regulators and policymakers to say, you know, here is good practice for securing the, um, the, the home Wi-Fi that nowadays everybody has got in their homes. How, how, how else do you communicate to a large public what good is? Individual companies have a role in doing it. And, but actually, what you want to work with governments so that governments can turn around and say um, to the entire world, this is what is good for your systems. And that's, you know, to be, to be very clear about this, we don't want governments to say, you must use an ARM-based system. That would be creating some sort of national monopoly. But equally, if we can provide standards that people use and they get referenced by government, then people will recognise that systems we produce are consistent with government policy. And then that gets trust into the people and helps build a more secure uh, system. Because if somebody can start hacking into the internet from my, my mother's poorly secured... Uh, Wi-Fi system because she didn't know what she was doing when she she bought something and just bought the cheapest thing on the shelf, then, um, you know, that actually could compromise other things than just her setup. So uh, this is why in this incredibly interconnected world, the security of the world is incredibly um, interconnected as well. 
And that means that the role of regulators and policymakers is to encourage that best practice to be used by people who really don't know what they're doing. And this is where governments have a role, but the technology companies, people like ARM, um, have a role. And similarly, as, as you get standards such as um, the, the cryptographic standards we were talking about before, then, um, you know, again, how do you know a cryptographic standard is actually worth having? Well, you, you need to have independent experts um, reviewing it. It's no good me saying, hey, trust me, I'm, I'm good when you know nothing about me. The role of, of policymakers and regulators really is, is to be the body that people trust. Yeah, and I know that a lot of the innovation you're talking about in digital security is designed to improve security in conventional digital systems. But I also know the work doesn't stop there. So how do you think about future developments, such as quantum computing, for example? Uh, quantum computing has gained the headlines a little bit at the moment because one of the fundamentals of, um, of, the, of computer security is, is cryptography, um, that's encoding and decoding stuff. And the, the may, one of the main algorithms that is used um, for cryptography uh, is the asymmetric key cryptography. And that tends to be based around the difficulty in performing various mathematical operations, such as the factoring of the product of two very large prime numbers. But the problem is that with a conventional computer, that is really hard. However, we project that with quantum computers, that turns out to be remarkably easy, which means that the fundamental premise upon which the uh, cryptography is based will be undermined. Um, if that happens, then um, we would be in a situation where people would then be able to, to break um, that public key cryptography uh, very easily. And that typically is used for things like key distribution. And then you start unraveling some of the principles of security. Now, the good news is that the main bodies that, that uh, certify and uh, come up with um, uh, cryptography algorithms, people like NIST in the US and Etsy in Europe, uh, the, uh, Etsy being the European Telecommunications and Standards Institute, they are working on new techniques called post-quantum uh, cryptography um, to come up with problems that actually aren't going to be solved by quantum computers or by conventional computers. And we're tracking the development of those technologies and we'll be deploying them when they're ready. Well, thank you for that, Richard. I'm feeling a little more secure, and I'm sure your mother is too, as a result of hearing what you had to say. The new ARM Security Manifesto that Richard mentioned can be found in the Security Solutions area on ARM.com. And we look forward to bringing you more conversation in the next episode of ARM Viewpoints.